Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22, which is also on page 8 of your bulletin. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! There is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is God's word. We began a new series uh, last week on uh, the saga that is Jacob. Uh, Jacob, probably one of the most uh, easily relatable figures in the book of Genesis for sure. um, Because Jacob's life, filled with struggles, filled with failures, filled with doubts, probably more struggles, more failures, more doubts than Abraham, Isaac before him. So it teaches us this, that... Simply just believing in God is not enough. It's not enough to get through life's struggles. Jacob believed in God. He knew about God. Uh, His parents, his grandparents uh, lived uh, in God, and so he knew and he believed, but it's not enough. That that belief was not enough. It's not sufficient to uh, get him through life's struggles. And this is a pretty famous passage, and it's where we get the phrase, or the term Jacob's Ladder. And uh, what's it mean? What is Jacob's Ladder? We can look at the text in three parts, um, and it's all in the context of this dream about the ladder, the stairway. What Jacob believed about God before the dream, what he saw during the dream, and what he learned about God after the dream. So what he believed before the dream, what he saw in the dream, what he learned after the dream. First, what Jacob believed about God, and this is all before the dream, and you see this in the first two verses, 10 to 11. Jacob, he reached, it says, a certain place, a certain place. In other words, the narrator didn't even think that it was important to tell us where he actually went. Perhaps the place didn't even have a name. It was, it was a nowhere place. Jacob was nowhere. He just stole the blessing and he ran off, and he's now in this nowhere place. He's in the middle of nowhere. He had absolutely nothing. How do you know that? Because it says in verse uh, 10 and 11 that he took a stone. You know, the sun had set and it's dark. It was time for him to now rest. Pitch black. It means that there was no light. He's in this completely nowhere place. 
And he finds a stone and he rests on the stone for a pillow and goes to sleep. Now, think about it. If you had anything else with you, a backpack, shoes, socks, a coat, you would have used that as your pillow. Jacob uses a stone. He is absolutely penniless, has absolutely nothing. His life has completely fallen apart. Why is that? What's the background? Just a brief background. Jacob was born two sons, one of two sons, twins. And in their mother's womb, it says that they were jostling about in the womb, Jacob and his brother. And so the mother, so perplexed by this, took her sons, took, a, took this to, an inquiry to the Lord, it says, a prophet. And the prophecy was that the elder will serve the younger, completely countercultural, completely counterintuitive. The elder is actually going to serve the younger. Jacob was supposed to be the one to receive the blessing, but as he grew up, Jacob grew, became ignored because the father, Isaac, is doting on Esau. Esau, the elder, he was doting on Esau. He favored Esau. He loved Esau. So Jacob grew up desperate for his father's attention, desperate for his father's love. He felt worthless uh, whenever he didn't have his father's love. And so what did he do? He dressed up like his brother. To get his father's love, he dressed up like Esau. Esau, the athletic, dynamic, charismatic, strong, muscular, masculine, handsome man. He tricks his father, who's old and aging. He says he's blind, near death. And uh, he tricks him to give him the blessing. And because of Esau's fury, Esau is furious. He says, I'm going to kill my brother. Jacob has no choice. He's got to run. He's got to leave. And in verses 10 to 11... The text says he stopped for the night because the sun had set on him. It's as if the whole, the narrator is trying to show us a picture. It's as if, you know, Jacob's life, you know, the sun had set on Jacob's entire life. He's in complete darkness. Life, God, calling, all these things. God's plan completely closed to to Jacob. His life is shattered. He's in complete darkness. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. And at this point, there's no blessing. He doesn't see any blessing in his life. He's completely confused. God was supposed to bless me. Why is God letting all this happen? Life was in complete contradiction to everything that he believed that God had promised him. God's love, his grace, his compassion, you know, completely contradictory in Jacob's life. And he just feels absolutely closed from God's plan. He doesn't know God's plan. He doesn't see God's love. He doesn't see God's compassion. And he's thinking, you know, I don't understand you. I don't understand you. I'm confused about you. That's Jacob. That's what he's thinking. Why is he confused? Why is Jacob confused? He's not just questioning God's plan. Jacob, at this point, he's not seeking God. He's not searching for God. He knows God. He understands God, you know, in terms of just hearing about God, knowing about him, but he doesn't seek him. God at this point himself, it's not just God's plan that's veiled to Jacob. God himself is dark. God himself is remote. God seems uninvolved. God seems completely distant from Jacob. And, and as a result, you know, think about it. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, by this point, all of them had met God personally. They had encountered God personally, but not Jacob. Jacob, at this point in time, completely far from God. What does this tell us? That it's never enough just to know about God. 
It's never enough just to hear about God. You could be coming to church week in and week out just knowing more about God. But that, and that's Jacob. We need to know God. It's never enough just to believe in God. We need to believe God. It's never enough just to, just to grow up in church, to, to know about God, to hear the Bible, to read the Bible, to know the rules. You need to have a personal encounter with God. God has to be real to you. That ideal has to become real to you. And Jacob, as a result, he's utterly confused, completely confused. He's, he's living life on his own. God seems completely close to Jacob. He's deceived his family. He just stole the blessing. He just ran off. He's lost everything. And at this time, he's not seeking God. He's not crying out to God. He's not repenting to God. And throughout this narrative, you don't see this passage, verses 10 to 22, you don't see once, not once, even after God appears to him, not once do you see him saying, you know, he's praying for forgiveness, praying for mercy, crying out for help, not once. And then he has the dream. He has his dream. And all of a sudden, the confusion starts to lift. What did Jacob see? In his dream, Jacob sees three things. And he hears three things. He sees first, verse 12, a stairway. Some of us, you know, you you hear it as a ladder, but in actuality, it's a stairway. It's not quite a ladder. It's a huge ramp. From the bottom, this ramp touches the earth, and all the way at the top, it reaches to heaven and touches heaven. It's an amazing sight. Jacob is stunned. It says he, is, he says, how awesome is this? He's stunned when he sees this ladder. And on the ladder, what do you see? The second thing he sees is these angels. These angels are ascending from the earth to the throne of God and descending back to earth. They're ascending and descending upon the throne of God. And, you know, a lot of us, you know, um, when we think about this, this is not, you've got to get this out of your mind, this is not the angels that you see on TV or the angels that you see in movies. It's not like it's a hundred cupids, you know, fluttering up to the throne of God and then coming down. That's not what Jacob sees. Whenever Jacob, oftentimes whenever angels come and approach a person in the Bible, what do you see? What do you hear? They start out by saying, they don't say hello, they say, they say do not be afraid. Why? Because angel, these people had reason to fear when they saw an angel. And what Jacob sees, it's an amazing sight. He sees hundreds, dozens, maybe thousands of angels rising and descending on the throne. Up to the throne and descending from the throne to earth. An amazing sight. Power. He sees God's power emanating from the throne to the earth and rising back up. What does Jacob see? God's royal power is on the move. The power that God dispenses from the throne, these angels, because what were they? Angels, the word angel means that they're a royal herald. They're the messengers, the official messengers of God. So God, here he is, declaring from the throne, and the angels are taking it. They're descending from the throne of God. They're rising up, declaring, executing his work, and ascending back to the throne of God. And that's what Jacob's seeing, constant. His royal power, his kingdom, it's on the move. And he sees this. It's a visual display of the royal power and majesty and the holiness of God. And what does he see? Verse 13, he sees the Lord, the throne of God. Robert Alter, a liberal uh, biblical commentator, but perhaps the most most well-knowledged and understanding of the Hebrew literature, 
you know, in his commentary, he says that it wasn't just that Jacob looked up and saw God up there in heaven. It's the actual text, the language says it's as if God had reached over and come down and peered over Jacob in his sleep. He's looking into Jacob's life. He's face to face with Jacob and he's speaking into his life. And what does he say? He says three things. Jacob hears three things. Verse 13 to 14, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to give you and your descendants this land. Verse 15, I am with you. And lastly, he says, I will watch over you. I'm going to give you this land. I will be with you. I will watch over you. That's verses 13 to 15. In other words, he says, I'm going to give you everything. When Jacob at this moment, at his lowest point, utterly penniless, he says, I will be with you. I am with you. When Jacob had nobody. The closest person in Jacob's life was his mom. He was the only person who loved him in his life. And at this point in time, he knows he will never see her ever again. Jacob has no friend, no father, no mother, no brother. God says, I am with you. And thirdly, he says, I will watch over you. Jacob is completely vulnerable. He is completely defenseless. In fact, God appears to him in his sleep. He is in his most vulnerable, broken state. And God says, I will watch over you. In other words, this vision tells Jacob that he was utterly wrong about what he believed about God. A lot of times we feel, you know, that God is distant. Maybe because of how we've lived. Maybe because of things we've done. Things that we can't shake. And we feel like God is just distant. Maybe just because we're just going through a lot. We feel tremendous pressure at home or at work. And um, life is confusing. Life doesn't make sense. And so God seems very, very distant from us. It seems like God doesn't care. Life is just tragic. Life is awful. And I'm here to submit to you, nothing, nothing is further from the truth. Nothing is further from the truth. God's royal power, his kingdom is on the move and it's near. It's constantly on the move. God is working things out right now, even in our suffering. God is working things out in such a way to bring perfect love. He's going to bring perfect love, perfect peace, perfect justice, all the way to the end. And at the end of the world, that's what's going to be left. That's what he's doing. We just can't see it. Jacob can't see it. But God is not unconcerned. God is not uninvolved. God is not remote. He is not removed. He absolutely cares. And for a brief moment in this dream, Jacob sees this. And he's comforted by this. And he hears God's words. In 2 Kings, there's an interesting, very obscure passage. But uh, the prophet Elisha, his servant, is in fear. Why? Because they're surrounded by their enemies. The enemies have surrounded them with their horses and their chariots and they're advancing on them. And, and the prophet, Elisha, says, don't be afraid. And he starts to pray to God. He starts to pray for a servant who's in fear. And he says, uh, what he says is, open his eyes, Lord, so that he will see. What the servant sees are all these enemies, horses and chariots advancing But Elijah says, open his eyes to let him see. And the text reads, then the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. That's what the servant sees. Though we're blind, we're so blind to all that God is doing in our weakness, 
in our fear, in our darkness, the power of God is working. And it's working mightily all around us in the world. That's God's work. We just don't see it. In other words, we don't understand why sometimes things go, bad, things go badly in life. We question it, you know, we don't, but it doesn't mean that God's not working. It doesn't mean that God's not working. You know, people often get angry at God for not stopping the suffering, you know. Um, but what are you really saying when you're doing that? When you're angry that God is not stopping the suffer, suffering, what you're saying is your anger presumes that there is a God that is all-powerful, great, and powerful, infinite, strong enough to stop it. And if you can presume that God is strong enough and powerful enough to stop the suffering but chooses not to, then you have to assume, you at least have to be open to considering that the same God who's all-powerful to stop the suffering must be all-wise, at the least must be all-wise, must have some knowledge and wisdom that is beyond you. His perspective must be higher than yours. His view and what he sees and what he wants and what he desires, his wisdom must be so much wiser than ours. We have to be open to that. You can't be angry at God for being all-powerful and not acknowledge that he's all-wise. God is at work in ways that we cannot see. And, and, you know, a humble heart is going to ask. A humble heart will still ask, you know, why are you doing this to me? Why is this happening in my life? But only a proud heart will stay angry and will stay depressed and will stay despondent. For Jacob, God didn't stand on the stairway and say, you have to figure it out. You have to ascend the ladder. You have to ascend the staircase. You have to figure out. That's not what he said. He came down, and he was over him. He spoke into him. Jacob was not seeking God at this time. Mind you, he was not repenting, but God came to him out of sheer grace out of his loving kindness. At the lowest point in his life, he's completely broken. He's done horrible things. In fact, he had just stolen. He had ruined his family. And he had run off. Yet God comes. And not once does he say, I know what you did and you're running away from me. That's not what he says. All he utters is what? My promise is for you. I am with you. I am with you. Right? And uh, he, his promises are just utterly unconditional. Unconditional. Unbelievable. Lastly, that's what Jacob saw. We saw, you know, what he believed beforehand. You know, he thought that God was distant, that heaven was closed up to him, that heaven was dark to him. Um, we saw what he saw. He saw the angels, you know, the throne of God, God's power being dispensed, and he saw the stairway to heaven. And God utters those three wonderful words of unconditional love. And verses 16 to 17, I'm just going to read verses 16 to 17 here. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He said, I didn't see it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. You know, what... What did Jacob learn from all of this? What's the meaning, the secret to the stairway? Um, Jacob doesn't wake up and say, wow, this is amazing. This is awesome. You know, instead it says that he was afraid when he woke up. When he woke up, he was scared. He was in awe. In other words, what he's saying is, why am I still alive? I should be dead. Why am I still here? How can this be? And then he says, wait. 
This is the gate of heaven. What does it mean? Jacob realizes at this point how the gate of heaven, how the stairway to heaven actually works. The narrator is contrasting uh, this narrative with a narrative that we're all already very familiar with. In Genesis chapter 11, the people come together and they build a city. And in the city, they build the highest point in the city. They build a tower. They say, we're going to build this tower, this tower that's going to reach to the heavens. The word Babel comes from two words. It's the play on words. It comes together with two words. The word Bab, which means gate, and El, which means God. Babel is the gate to God. And he says, we're going to build this gate to God. We're going to find access to God because the, you know, Babel, uh, the city, it's always built. Temples were always built in the most important place where the people dwelled, where very important people tend to dwell in the center portions where commerce and work, you know, uh, social hangouts are. That's where the important people hang out. That's why everyone is attracted to the city. And the tower is usually defines the city. It's usually the highest point in the city. And these people said, let's build this. We want to be important. We want to feel important. And so this Babel was a temple. It was a ziggurat with a stairway, literally, that reached to the heavens. Um, and uh, the people went there to ascend the steps. They came and brought sacrifices and offerings and prayers so that they could be blessed by God, they and their families. And Jacob is in awe. Why? Because he learned that now I realize this is how the gate of heaven actually works. It's not what he thought. <clears throat> and it's not how we often think. Every other religion <clears throat> is a stairway, <clears throat> excuse me, a gateway to heaven. Every other religion requires you to ascend the stairs. Every other religion requires you to ascend the stairway to the gods that's built by man. But Jacob's dream is what? It's a stairway from earth touching the heavens. From God. A stairway from heaven. The angels have come down and ascended and descended. And the Lord has come and actually descended and reached out and reached out to man. He says, this is how the gate of heaven works. You don't ascend to God to get the blessing by being good, by feeling important. But this stairway, God comes. We don't go to him. God comes down and reaches down to man. Religion requires man to fulfill certain conditions. You have certain requirements, certain rules that you have followed. If you do them well, you feel pretty good about yourself. But the gospel, God comes in unconditional love the way he came to Jacob. Different from every other religion in the world. And this is a problem for Jacob. This is a huge problem for Jacob. He's confused. He's in awe. He's afraid. He says, how could God come to a person like me? Do you know what I've done? What I deserve? Abraham, great man, man of faith, he sought God. God met him. You know, how did God come to a great man like Abraham? I want you to rip open these animals apart and I will pass between. And he came. God came in a smoking fire pot, a blazing torch. Moses says, show me your glory. The great Moses, show me your glory. God says, well, if I come, and I will, I want to reveal all of myself to you. But if I do, if I did that, and if I nakedly come before you, you will be consumed because of my holiness. So I'm going to put you in the cleft of a rock, and I'm going to pass by so you could see only the back of me, so you could be shielded. 
Isaiah, we read this in the call to worship. Isaiah, in all of his greatness, he's at the peak of his career as an orator, comes before God, and he falls to the ground when he sees God. He says, I am ruined. Even at my best, I am ruined. In fact, you know, the, the, in the call to worship, what happened? The coal, the burning coal, touched his tongue. It means even at our best, we are, we are still utterly consumed by God's holiness. We need to be cleansed. Jacob, this is a huge problem for Jacob because he's nothing like Abraham, nothing like Moses. In fact, you know, I think I said this last week, if you read all the passages involving Jacob, there's not a single passage in the next four or five chapters that makes you say, oh, what a good role model. No, not Jacob. Completely look at Jacob. He is a broken person and he knows it. He does none of this. He didn't pray. He wasn't seeking God. He didn't go into the temple. He likely wasn't even thinking much about God. He was probably consumed with survival, trying to just make ends meet. He just wants to make a way. He just wants to make a way, find this blessing on his own in some way. Yet God comes completely in grace, completely in compassion, with the, with the power and the multitude of the angels, with the dispensing power of his glory and all his might. And he appears before Jacob like a father reaching out to his son, kissing him on the forehead as he's, as he's sleeping. That's what he's doing, like a sleeping child with assurance. Jacob, at the bottom of his life, only receives unconditional promise from God. How does he do that? How do we receive that? Centuries later, in John chapter 1, these people come to Nathaniel. And they go to Nathaniel and they say, we found the Messiah. We found the Messiah, the one that all the prophets are talking about. We finally found him. Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from here? In other words, Nazareth, it's such an unimportant place. This is nowhere. Nazareth is a nowhere. We're in the middle of nowhere here. It's not important. You would never build a temple that reaches the Messiah there. In other words, God doesn't come from unimportant places like that, but Philip says, come and see. And Nathanael encounters Jesus, and Jesus says, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. And Nathanael says, you know me. How do you know me? Only my friends know me. How do you know me? And Jesus says, know you. I saw you under the fig tree. And we don't know exactly what Nathanael was doing under the fig tree. We don't know what he was thinking under the fig tree. Um, But you know, it so compelled him and convinced him of who Jesus is. It was so private that only he knew. It was only between him and God. And so when he sees, only between him and God, and when he sees Jesus and hears this, he's so convinced of who Jesus is. He says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, you believe. You know, you're a credulous believer. You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree? That's why you believe? you will see even greater things than that. And then he says, I tell you the truth. In the Greek, that's amen. You usually say that at the end of something you say because you listen to that and you say, yeah, what you're saying is true. You say amen. But he starts out, he says, I'm saying to you authoritatively, amen. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. In other words, what is he saying? What he's saying is this. I am the stairway. 
I am the link to heaven. I am the one that touches earth and touches heaven. And I am the stairway that, that the angels ascend and descend upon. The answer as to why the stairway that Jacob saw looks completely different from the stairways that we see in religion. And that's why Christian is completely different. It is not a religion. Completely different than religion. Notice, Jesus doesn't say, you will see the angels of God ascending and ascending to the Son of Man. That's not what he says. He says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. I am the stairway. I am the steps. What are the steps? The steps are the requirements. The steps to God. Everybody understands that there, every religion has steps to God. Judaism has the Ten Commandments. Buddhism has the, has the Eightfold Path. Islam has the, the, um, the Five Pillars. Here, Jesus says, I am the requirements fulfilled. I am the stairway. The angels ascend and descend on me. You see God as ideal. I am God made real. I am real. You see God as just a figment, a concept. I am reality. I've already done everything for you. I'm not just a set of rules for you to follow. I'm not just an inspiration. Only Christianity teaches that God came down and suffered himself unjustly, tragically, seemingly senselessly. In fact, there were probably people, as Jesus is dying on the cross, there were probably people on the cross looking at him, seeing him suffer, saying, what good could come from this? This is disgusting. This is horrible. This is tragic. What good could come from this? They're probably yelling out that. But through death, what did Jesus do? He brought real life. Through his material poverty, he brought us real riches. Through his worldly brokenness, through his worldly weakness, uh, weakness, through his worldly shame that he had taken on, we have found real strength, real redemption. That's how God's power works. God's power, God's redemption works through our weakness. It works through our brokenness, through our troubles, through our suffering, through our agony, through our pain, in our sin, through the injustice, through our self-denial, uh, through death. That's how God's power works. God's royal power gets dispensed in our suffering, through our suffering. And through your suffering, that means that in your suffering, you can actually see heaven open up. You can connect with God. You can connect with Jesus even more. Why? Because who is Jesus? Jesus on the cross suffered. It was through his suffering that we can connect to God. So surely in your suffering then, it's not to punish you. God is not punishing you in your suffering. It's so that you can connect with God more deeply. Don't be angry at God. He's working right now. You know, the chariots of fire, you don't see it, but he's working in your suffering. He's working through your suffering. You may believe in Christianity. You may believe in the Bible, but without knowing that Jesus is a stairway, instead of see, unless you see Jesus is a stairway, you will never see heaven open up. God will forever be close to you. God's will, his plan, but more importantly, his love, his grace, his compassion. You're only going to see the wickedness. You're only going to see the darkness. It's never going to make any sense to you. You're going to hear people say God is compassionate, God is gracious, God is loving in the church. You're going to see that printed in your bulletins. You're going to see that seeing in the video projector, and it's going to be dark and unreal to you it's going to be closed off to you you're going to be living out the tragedy because you haven't come to jesus as the stairway you're still trying to work your way up you think that you know by getting blessing by figuring out and finding blessing you're going to be able to have access to god and that's not how it works 
Every other religion, that's how it works, but that's not how this works. If the Bible is just a set of instructions, then Jesus' life is merely an example, and his death is only an inspiration to you. And how long do you think that's going to last in your suffering? It's only when we see Jesus as the stairway. Then you can see heaven opening up to you. That's how you see it. That's how you see it. And Jesus is suffering. Why was Jacob so miserable? It's because he was lonely. Why was he lonely? It's because he was deceitful. He had alienated the only people who could possibly love him. And he was proud and he was wicked and he had malice. And heaven seemed completely closed to Jacob, completely dark to Jacob. Mark chapter 1, what happens? Jesus, the greater Jacob, is being baptized. And the heavens opened up, it says. And the Spirit of God comes down on Jesus. And God's voice speaks out to Jesus. And what does he say? He says, this is my son whom I love. It's the same promise to Jacob. This is my son. But on the cross, what do you see? Jesus lived a greater life than Jacob could ever live. Jacob was a fraud. He was a crook. He was a thief. He's constantly working to earn his own blessing. But Jesus already earned the love of the Father. And yet on the cross, he came down to take our misery. He came down and took all the loneliness on himself. And on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Meaning, heaven is closed to me. And he's asking why. He's confused. He says, I'm confused. I don't understand. Heaven has been closed off. God is now really remote. God is distant from me. God has left me. God has abandoned me. God has rejected me. Foxes have holes. Birds in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. He is the greater Jacob, not a pillow. Heaven is closed to Jesus. Jesus suffered the cosmic loneliness on the cross. He suffered the ultimate penalty of our sin. No intimacy with God the Father. Why? He did this for me. Do you sense that? Does that truth move you? Does that truth, let it, you got to let it work in you. That's the truth that we need. That's why, even though Jacob's a sinner, God could stand over him and say, I love you. That's why he can do that. Jacob, he's in awe, he's completely afraid, but God can speak words of unconditional love to Jacob. And he speaks, if he can do something like that to Jacob, trust me. You don't need to trust me. Listen to these words he can speak those unconditional words to you. If he could heal a person like Jacob, he can heal you. If he could restore a person like Jacob, he can restore you. Jacob, penniless, had no family, no love, no nobody, utterly friendless, and yet God says, I am with you. I am with you. I will be with you. I love you. That's what he says. Very quick applications. Number one, there's no place on earth where God is not working. God's power, you know, you saw the vision. That means God's power is anywhere and everywhere. You know, there's, if you, uh, in high school, if you grew up in a church, you probably went on some retreats, uh, camps, you know, and uh, there's, without fail, there's always that one, you know, every retreat is a, has the same skits, just redone. You know that, right? And you have skit night, and, you know, there's always that one skit where, um, you know, Jesus is Jesus because you know because he's wearing a towel, you know. Uh, it's always a white towel or a sheet. You know, and the, and the girl or guys like lugging it around. And, and you know all the people who are not in Jesus because they're the ones wearing the bandanas. 
<laughs> you know, um, everyone, every, everybody's wearing the bandanas. They're not in Jesus. That's how you know. Uh, and they're always at a party. And, you know, Jesus <laughs> is following them around in the party. And, uh, you know, like, they're, like, drinking and partying because that's, like, that's supposed to be the end-all, be-all, bad thing to do. They're drinking and they're smoking the party and, and there's always some sort of bass beat music going on. And there's Jesus is. And he says, come to me. And, and the people say, no. It's always the same, uh, you know, it's always that dramatic, no. You know, and Jacob's, you know, Jesus says, you know, he's always doing that. You know those skits, right? It's actually true. It's actually true. It's, it doesn't look that, uh, you know, childish or anything like that, but it's actually true. There's not a single place where God is not. He's always present. He's always present. That means that you can't dichotomize your life. You can't, uh, you know, act and think and feel differently on Sunday and then, and, and then completely uh, go, go off and live your life normally the way you normally live it. That, heaven's going to be closed to you when you do that. Heaven's going to be completely closed off to you. Practice God's presence anywhere because God's presence is everywhere. That's number one. Secondly, uh, God works especially in times when we are totally weak, totally alone. You know, we always want to dress up. Jacob, he's constantly dressing up to be somebody else. He wants to be Esau. That way, because he thinks that's the way to the blessing. But the thing is, that's not the way God's power works. God's power works how? In your weakness. If you're weak, say you're weak. Be specific about your weakness. You know, in, in our community groups, one thing I'm blessed about in our community groups is that they tend to be very sincere. People are very open. They're honest. If you are that one person that's not open and honest, everybody else, heaven is opening up. You feel dark. It's not going to work. You feel dark. You feel lonely. You feel remote. And not just from God, from each other. That's how it feels. You know, the best way to plug in is to let yourself out. God knows anyway. He knows. And listen to the words. You want to experience it, you want to sense it, that's how you do it. You know why? Because God is absolutely attracted and empowered by your weakness. God didn't come to Jacob because there was some little bit of goodness in Jacob. There isn't. This text is trying to show you that. He's in utter darkness. The sun is set on him. He's coming to Jacob because he's attracted to that brokenness. He's empowered by The more broken you are, the stronger Christ's love and faithfulness becomes for you. Admit you're weak. Admit your failures. Be, empower Christ. And, and Paul says, that when I am weak, then Christ is strong. Lastly, uh, he doesn't give up on us. Um, if you think Christianity is too much work and you're having a hard time keeping up, um, look at Jacob's response. The, these are the last four or five verses. The next morning he sets up a pillar and then he, he kind of prays this weird, it's a horrible prayer actually. It's a very, very bad prayer. Here is God coming to Jacob and saying, I will love you. I will be with you. You will always be secure. You will never have to worry. You will have all this land, not only you, your descendants. And what is, not a single if statement from God. Unconditional. And what does Jacob do? He builds this pillar and he says, if God does this, then he will be my God. Terrible prayer. He's a horrible man. Horrible person. A lot like us. How do we pray? That's how we pray. We pray most when we, have, when we start to panic. That's how we pray. But God still doesn't, even when you're, there's not a single point in your life where you will ever have real motives you know, to come to God and ask for things. They're always going to be mixed in with selfish things. That's just how we are as people. We're sinful and we're, we have poor motives, you know. 
But look at God. What does this tell you? God, so loving, so gracious. He knows. And yet, he blesses and he loves. And even though our responses to God will always be selfish, God does not give up on us. Why? Because Jesus already took the penalty that we deserved. He is the stairway by grace alone. Sola gratia. Do you see that? Do you see that? Let that move you. Because then heaven will be opened to you. Then God and his access will come to you and it will change you. And you will have a father greater than any father, a husband greater than any husband, a king greater than any leader, a spouse greater than any lover. That's what you'll have. Let's pray.